Let us pray. Father, through fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. A couple housekeeping things first. Isn't it awesome to see Deacon Josh doing deaconly uh, duties during the service? I think it's awesome. Uh, and also to you mothers, uh, thank you for providing us an example of what the gospel looks like in the way that you interact with your children um, and for making them disciples, even if they are very little. Uh, we appreciate the example and the model that you set for the rest of us. But as you know, being in an Anglican church, we preach on the readings and the readings don't have to do with Mother's Day. But I did want to get that out up front that you all are much appreciated here. Imagine being one of Jesus' 11, faithful 11 disciples, and walking with him for three years. And then he's betrayed, and he dies, and you think that the mission is over. And so for three days you are lost, and you don't know what to do with yourself, and you think that everything is hopeless, and then all of a sudden he appears, and he's alive, and you think, that the mission still continues because he's come back, he's conquered death. And if I was them, I might think like Peter did when he was at the Mount of Transfiguration and immediately what his first impulse when he sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah is to build booths so that they can hang out for an extended period of time. But Jesus wasn't there for more than 40, 50 days. He was, he was resurrected but he was going back to heaven in order to prepare a place for the disciples. So when he leaves them, it must have been a bittersweet event and time for them. All of our readings today have to do with this departure because Thursday was the ascension. So our theme today is the concept of Jesus going to heaven. Last week, the bishop camped out on part of John 17, which is called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, where she prays right before his arrest and his passion. This week, our gospel reading focuses on the next portion of the prayer. If you have to divide out this prayer, verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for his own glorification and subsequently the glorification of the Father because the Father works through the Son and is known by him. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the 12 disciples who are with him. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all believers everywhere and all time. In our reading today, the focus is on the 12 disciples. These were the people Jesus spent his time with, who he cared about, all while knowing that they would eventually be martyred for the sake of the gospel. Well, not all of them, but most of them. So in his prayer, our Lord requests the Holy Spirit for the disciples, knowing that he would be leaving soon and would no longer be there to protect them. Protection was necessary because he is, as he prays in verses 14 through 15, the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Because of the dichotomy between the church and the world, believers don't belong here, even though here is where we find ourselves. So Christ asks for them to be sanctified. <coughs> In Christian speak, sanctification means to be molded into the image of Christ. It's a long and arduous process that pretty much all of us work on our whole entire lives and still don't quite get to where it is that we want to be. 
The goal of sanctification is that we might actualize what God has pronounced about us, namely that we are members of the family of God. But sanctification entails the idea also of separation. As we become more like Christ, we become less like the world. But that separation isn't out of elitism or a holier-than-thou mentality. It's entirely missional in focus, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20, so we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are sanctified to be separate so that we might make others sanctified and also separate. In this context of Jesus' prayer, the juxtaposition of this prayer with his imminent departure and the great commission gives the, given to the disciples is particularly important. So on this Sunday of the Ascension, it's time for us to ask, how is Jesus' prayers fulfilled after his elevation into heaven? And the answer to this question begins to take place in our Acts reading and then is further answered in 1 John. At the beginning of our Acts reading, Peter stands up in front of the fledgling church of about 120 people and makes a motion that that a twelfth disciple be chosen in place of Judas, who not only betrayed Christ, but also committed suicide. It's interesting to note, though, that in describing Judas' actions, Peter quotes two psalms. The first is Psalm 69.25, May their camp be a desolation, let no one live in their tents. And then Psalm 109.8, may his days be few, may another seize his position. The point being, we should read Judas's actions as the ultimate futility. What he meant for evil and for wickedness God, were part of God's salvation plan. God wasn't surprised or frustrated by what Judas did, but used his actions to bring about the salvation of the world. Because Judas was one of the twelve, though, Peter sees a need for picking a replacement, and the number twelve is pretty important both in the Old Testament and in the church's self-understanding. Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. Rather than emphasizing a nation or an ethnicity, the church is all those who are baptized into Christ and makes up what is known as the new Israel. Old Israel had twelve tribes for the twelve sons of Jacob, And so because Jesus establishes the church as a new Israel, it was fitting that there would be 12 apostles who would make up the foundation of that church. So the church prays for guidance in verses 24 through 25, saying, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. Then they cast lots, which... Most likely, it was a way to show their reliance on God while minimizing the opportunity for campaigning and the politics of voting. So maybe it would be a good idea if we all went back to casting lots for more things than we do. And the lots fell on Matthias, who joined the eleven. This reading shows how Christ's prayer is to be answered. In his absence, Christ appointed apostles to lead and guide his church. Matthias being added to that, to that group of apostles is the first instance of what we call apostolic secession. That is the transmission of authority through the episcopate. According to Vernon Staley, an Anglo- Anglican theologian in the 1900s, the office of bishop comes with four fundamental roles. It's the fount of ministry. They're the ones in charge with normative authority. Father Jim and I aren't in charge. The bishop is in charge and we serve at his pleasure. He gets the final say in what we do, and so if he tells us to jump, we ask how high. 
The second is the bond of unity. Bishops are to guard against schisms while providing the necessary structures for organizing the church. The third is that they guard the truth. Historically, bishops convene councils, adopt creeds, and make other proclamations about the teachings of the Christian faith. In recent times, these bishops, who are ordained in apostolic secession, formed what we now worship in, the Anglican Church in North America, in order to preserve truth from the mass apostasy that was going on in the Episcopal Church. Fourth and finally, they are instruments for the pledge of grace known as the sacraments. Sacraments run through the office of the bishop. He delegates some of those to priests, but ultimately what we do sacramentally is valid because of the authority of the episcopacy. So apostolic secession is the means Christ uses to take care of his church. But this Acts passage provides us another underlying principle that the Holy Spirit can and does often lead the church. And the way that the church prays for God to reveal the right candidate for bishop is a model for us as far as when we seek his will corporately and individually as far as what he would have us do. But of course, the church is made up of people, so it's messy, and things aren't always so easy or clear. Article 19 of the 39 article sums it up well. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, so also the church of Rome hath erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. It effectively means there is no such thing as a perfect church. Yet in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin and our pride and our, our messiness, the Holy Spirit still moves. He still works. He's still faithful to provide for God's people. And this is why at the end of morning and evening prayer, we pray this prayer of St. Chrysostom, or if you come here for the daily offices, the prayer of St. Josh, which includes the line, you have promised through your well-beloved son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Our first John reading takes this principle further. 1 John is a book that emphasizes the apostolic witness to the Christ story. 1 John 1, 1 through 4 says this, We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In our reading today, John emphasizes three witnesses to the truth. The first is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who was active in our Acts reading and picking Matthias. It was the same Spirit who was active here last week when Josh was ordained, and it's the same Spirit who's active each and every week in the Eucharist. The second witness is water, probably a reference to the baptism of John, which showed Christ to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but also the sacrament of baptism that is administered in Christ's name by the church. The idea of water baptism is a witness to the truth that you hear us say often, remember your baptism. The waters of baptism mark a new creation definitively and objectively. 
And the third and final witness is the blood. According to 1 John 2, 2, Christ's death is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ's blood covers us from our sin and makes relationship with God a possibility. However, like water, the blood points to a deeper sacramental reality that we experience in the Eucharist. In communion, we receive the forgiveness of sin and the strength that we need as we are conformed to the image of Christ. So we have our witnesses, Holy Spirit, baptism, communion. But what is the content of this testimony? What is it that they witness to? John answers that in verses 11 through 12. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And according to verse 13, this message is so that the hearers of it might have that life. Much like the Holy Spirit heard the prayers of the church in Acts and moved through the casting of lots to choose Matthias, the result of this testimony is found in verses 14 through 15. And this is the boldness we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know what he hear, that he hears in what, us in whatever we ask, we know that we have obtained the requests made of him. He hears us. The work of the Holy Spirit, baptism, and Eucharist all tell us that God moves and God works on our behalf. Because of this, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that through the Holy Spirit, that, that Christ has achieved our redemption and we will be heard through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our prayers do not go out into the void, forever reverber reverberating in emptiness and darkness. They go straight to the ear of God who loves us and gave himself for us. And the ascension is an appropriate time to be reminded of this because the ascension is when Christ establishes his church with the Great Commission. The Great Commission is composed of the gospel proclamation and the administration of the sacraments. Those two actions are to be done in the church which he established. In Christ's absence, the church then exists to perpetuate the gospel. So John's purpose, which is to remind hearers that God gives us eternal life in his Son, might be fulfilled. So in Christ's physical absence... The role of Christians is to draw nearer to him, or maybe it'd be more accurate to say to let him draw near to us through the sacraments and to do his bidding that we proclaim the gospel. John Keeble was one of the founders of the Oxford movement and a poet, um, and he wrote this about ascension, and I found it particularly beautiful this week as I was preparing this. So listen carefully to what Keeble says. What is Christ's bidding? That we should run after him, that we should obtain a place in the same heaven where he has gone before in order that we should even now ascend thither in heart and mind. But because the church knows that we cannot by mere wishing obtain such a mind as this, therefore she prays and teaches us to pray, draw me. She humble, humbly and seriously prays and we will run after thee. As if she should say, I know well that in me and my flesh dwelleth and abideth no good thing. Therefore, it must be quite changed and renewed, and this is far too hard a task for me. I commend, therefore, to thee, O Lord. Take me in hand, I beseech thee, and draw me constantly and mightily towards thee and towards that heaven where thou art gone. Attract and entice me towards thee, unworthy as I am, by all sorts of loving and affectionate dealings. 
Draw me towards thee by thy good providence, ordering the events of my life, the friends and acquaintances that I meet with, my joys and sorrows, my health and sickness, my employment, employment and diversions, secretly and wonderfully in such sort as shall most uh, turn my soul for you, the world, and turn it towards thee. Draw me towards thee again by the reading and hearing of thy most holy and heavenly scriptures, causing me to light in the proper time upon those verses that will do me good, to hand upon them, to taste all their sweetness, or if need be, all their bitterness, and not let them go until they have become, as it were, part of my mind, and are in a way to do me the whole good thou intended by them. Draw me by the noble and winning examples of the holy men, women, and children who thou from time to time hast blessed with a double portion of thy spirit. Show thine own brightness upon them and incline my heart to delight in it. For left to myself, I know too well I shall, be, I shall but neglect or even hate it. Draw me once more, and most of all, draw me, I pray thee, by thy most holy and life-giving sacrament. There above all, help me to taste and see how gracious thou, O Lord, art. There let me touch thee as thou didst promise to St. Mary Magdalene, now that thou art ascended to the Father. Let me in the sacrament of thy love touch the hem of thy garment, and by that draw me onward and upward, till my old impure self, being thoroughly put off and cast aside, I being holy and only thine, may dwell only and holy with thee. So this Ascension Sunday, let's heed Keeble's words knowing that even in Christ's absence, he's still present with us in and through his church. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending us your son who lived among us as one of us so that he could die for us. We pray that as we await his coming again, that we might participate in your body, the church, where you provide for us witnesses through the movement of the Holy Spirit, baptism, and Eucharist to testify to the truth that life is found in Christ alone. May, be, may we be a people that always pursues you in and through your church. Amen.